This week. Don't put that in there. <laughs> General Rock. Um, has anybody gone and checked it out? No. That there are now walrus people. Walrus men. Uh, well, actually, Bob. We've got Bob in the party. Bob. Bob's a cat person. So. I love him. <laughs> He's my favorite. I hate it. I hate that. I hate it. I despise that. Makes them look like they keep building garbage. Mm. I hate it. I don't like it. But I like oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, it feels like I'm sitting in on a therapy session. Yeah, bugaboos. <laughs> bonus action, just like. <laughs> Note to Ben Burns, screw you. <laughs> because what the f- All of that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one D&D podcast in all of the playtesting material of all the playtested podcasts. This one was the one that had the best survey results and turned back 90% satisfaction in all fields. I'm sure that would be true if we actually surveyed anybody. But anyway, my name is Ben Byrne. And I am here, joined as always by Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, and filling in for Sean Merwin this week, we have Luna. Luna, welcome to the Eldritch Lawcast. Thanks. Exciting to be here. Normally I'm lurking in the chat, but here I'm like. You are. We appreciate you being with us here uh, in the chat every week. And I was like, well, let's get her in the chat. Uh, for this week's episode with Sean out. Thank you. I'm here I'm here for the next hour, so stick around. Uh, Luna, I do have to ask you a question, though, as is tradition for each uh, Eldritch Lawcast. What do you think, currently speaking, with the currently existing official rules, is the best cleric subclass? I've never played a cleric. You can't pull this question on me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I've never played a cleric. I don't have even know what the in subclasses your party? are. Nah, we never have healers in our party. <laughs> <laughs> the no, best actually, we've got Luna in today to talk about party balance. <laughs> no, that's not true. We did have a cleric. Uh, my friend had to leave the group because uh, she had a baby, so she was only for a couple of sessions. Um, but she was a grave grave cleric. Mm. That's pretty cool. Oh, also, I should know from Critical Role. I'm a Critical Role YouTuber. Never mind. Uh, yeah, that's that true. one. That one's a good one. The, the, the trickster cleric. <laughs> all right, fair, fair. Uh, that, that's two out of the 70,000 cleric subclasses yep. that there happen to be. Uh, James Hake, do you have a specific favorite? Ooh, I am partial towards the Tempest cleric from the players. Oh, yeah. Um, I love maxing out damage on a die. It uh, doesn't matter how good it is. doesn't matter how numerically effective it is. It just feels right to uh, imagine all my dice come up sixes or whatever. Mm. <laughs> Uh, Dale Kingsmill, what about you? Favorite cleric subclass? See, this is, I've pulled up D&D Beyond. Hey, you should sponsor us. Um, (laughs) Just to make sure that I haven't forgotten any. Because I I do love the Tempest cleric. And I also, deep down in my heart, I have a great fondness for the war cleric. There's something Mm. about the way that those mechanics are written that really meshes well with um, the the sort of, the, the story of it in my head. And I really... Really like, really like the war cleric. I think those are my answers. Yeah, By the no, gods, I, we're being raided. I just noticed that too. Uh, we've been surprised attacked. We thought we were going to surprise attack folks with an early episode, but Rob Hartley raiding us. Thank you very Rob much, Rob, for Hartley. dropping in. General Rob here with his horde. <laughs> 
<laughs> Run for the hills. Um, the enemy is in our walls, gentlemen. <laughs> um, I have to agree with you, Dale. I am a fan. This is not a cleric subclass per se, because I think that any cleric subclass can be this to some capacity. But I am a fan of the punchy, fighty cleric. I'm a fan of the cleric that wields the mace and gets up in the, the guts of the combat and kind of leads the party in some capacity. Like a good heavy armor, tanky life or war cleric, uh, I'm all about that because there's just something that's really um, metal about having a cleric yeah. just uh, yeah. screaming from the front lines. Um, we have quite a bit of news to get through this week. I thought we were going to be talking all about the 1D&D, speaking of clerics, uh, playtest Unearthed Arcana that dropped uh, just after we recorded last week, as is typical. Uh, but there's actually a couple of extra tidbits that dropped a little bit earlier uh, as well. Breaking news coming in from my handwritten notes here. Um, uh, did anybody catch there's a new D&D movie teaser featurette interview with the cast thing that went up on YouTube maybe like seven hours ago? That's um, my favourite part of the press circuit. Is is. <laughs> TV cast interview with the end, the thing. Yeah. Whatever you said. I don't remember. There were a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> just the the snippets of them going like, oh, just everybody really pulled it together on this one. Oh, it's an, it's an adventure of epicness. Yeah, I, I really liked how what we couldn't see any time. of the monsters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Luna, what did you think? Did you get a chance to watch it? Oh, absolutely. I'm so excited. I've never seen the like the the not to be spoken of D&D movie, which one day I will watch. Um, but I'm really excited. I, I think it looks like a fun romp, which I think is what a D&D movie should be, because uh, for all of the very serious, you know, D&D out there, and I'm sure a lot of it exists. But I think from my experience, D&D is always about shenanigans. So sure. Yeah, it's it's got to have shenanigans. The true heart of any D&D uh, campaign. I think what they're managing is a really really well really well handled bridge thread between like winking at the camera and uh you know this is what happens in a D&D campaign uh w among the players without it being sort of cringy or too too um too much like there's a clip in the the latest trailer where they pull out the helmet from the chest which we've seen previously and then the paladin says to chris pine you know you must protect this with your life and he goes i absolutely will excuse me can you please hold this for and just like hands it <laughs> on to another party member which has the exact air of like you know you have just found the great sword of thug and thornton thrust into the stone and you have retrieved it out all right, who wants it? Does anybody? anybody it only does one d six. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I could use it, but I feel like it's more built for the barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly that kind of vibe. Um, I also appreciate that they giving a look behind the scenes. While uh, a lot of it is obviously very CGI driven, it's a very effects driven movie. It looks like they've gone to quite some effort to use animatronics and uh, sort of practical effects where they can, which uh, look. Honestly, really cool. Like, I, I had no idea that was the case when looking at the trailer initially, but they've shown off uh, just like a quick clip of the Aarakocra appears to to be in the movie now, and you can see its wings look just a little bit too real to be CGI uh, and seeing the other animatronics that they're sort of showing off in that trailer. So it looks cool. Yeah, that gives me hope. I feel like uh, those practical effects always hold up, like, so much better. 
Mm. It's a very yes. dark crystal sort of look, you know? Mm. Kind of look like the Gexies. Is that what they're called? Gexies. Ah, so close. You uh, were so you were close. Almost, almost there. pulled that off. I'm glad that I checked and didn't just like say that with all confidence and then move on. Um, but speaking of moving on, uh, the other quick bit of news that came out this week uh, just recently and kind of snuck out, actually. I feel like this. I would have missed this if I hadn't been paying attention. Is a new uh, monstrous compendium, uh, which is just dropped on D&D Beyond. I I was able to just go download it for free, so I assume anybody with a subscription can do that. Um, And it's, uh, what, like 12, 8, 10 new monsters, something like that, some number uh, new monsters that are Dragonlance-themed. But again, kind of continuing what they did earlier in the year, I believe, with Spelljammers, where they're just like, here, have some free monsters, have some free content. Are you you on D&D Beyond? Thank you. Have this free stuff. Um, has anybody gone and checked it out? No. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't I haven't gone and playtested them or anything, but I, I like these creatures. They've got good art. Their style and uh, mechanics look fun. Mm. And not necessarily just this sort of uh, reskin of stuff we've seen before either. In previous edition changes, like in the change from third to fourth edition and stuff, uh, that is when that era, that end of third edition era is when wizards really started posting a lot on their website with game additions from, uh, I shouldn't say addition in that way, with mm. little game supplements, mini supplements, web supplements, they call them, for uh, third edition stuff. And then when fourth edition rolled around, they all got archived. And over the years, those archives have deteriorated and been taken offline to save service space. And now, even with the Wayback Machine, they are fractious at best. Mm. So it does make me wonder what the fate of things like the Monstrous Compendium are. Even with D&D Beyond seeming like a pretty stable archive, um, you know, someday there will come a time where either D&D Beyond as a whole is defunct or D&D Beyond decides to save on server space by chunking all of their old 5e content. And so I'm like, I hope someone is saving these on, yeah. on an independent art. Storing it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I'd be, I mean, I'd be surprised if they started scrapping some of this 5e content in the wake of 6e too quickly, particularly mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, 5.5, 1D&D, 6e, whatever they want to call it, um, is billing itself as being backwards compatible, although we'll get into that in a moment. And we can see that the way that they've laid out these stat blocks are kind of similar to that progression that they're doing where it's like, you know, spells are now actions and and actions are now spells. And I made up the second part of that sentence. But the point is that digital access is not the same as ownership. No, uh, entirely. Yeah. Be wise to keep it in mind. Entirely. They didn't even do a good job of like advertising this really. Like I said, I would have blinked and missed it. I only know about it because somebody tweeted. And then when I went to the D&D Beyond website to find it, I had to really dig around in the in the like tab menus to be able to get it. Like they, it wasn't on the front page at all. So I just um, found it on the front page, but it was a bar at the top that I usually assume is like there's a sale on. Right. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Now, of course, there's all this, but we need to talk about the most important bit, that there are now walrus people. Walrus men! I was literally about to say that, James. I'm looking at him. I love him. He's my favorite person I, in the world. I quite love the fanoi. They're very cool. Yeah, I just pulled it up, too. It's such a cool design. Um, Yeah, 
It's really cool. I think I'm a Dragonlance fan now. <laughs> that, that, that got you. It wasn't the dragons. It was the walrus. Yeah. No, uh, I, I learned about these guys dude. a couple of months ago, just kind of randomly because I made I made a tweet that was like, what if instead of uh, boar tusks, orcs had walrus tusks and were very walrus inspired? And someone's like, well, you might be looking for the Thanoi. And I was like, what? <laughs> and now here they are. It's fantastic. <laughs> You willed it into being. Um, I've actually, I haven't read the stat block in detail, um, but just kind of scanning it. The Nevermind Gnome Inventor and the Gnome Mastermind. I just, I like, I have forever re-tinkered with the Kobold uh, Inventor to make them like a Dwarven Inventor or make them a, a Gnomish Inventor or something different uh, for the party to go up and fight. And having these in just instant, easy to use stat block form is kind of cool. So... I think I'll definitely get use out of those at some point as uh, enemy NPCs. I also like this freaky helmet art at the end. I like the forest master because it's just a pretty unicorn. <laughs> Autumn it is with cool. like a flame fan. Yeah, flame mane. So good. It's the everything unicorn. Um, yeah, I, I think you raise uh, a really good point, James, in terms of like what does this mean about um, how they're going to continue to re- release content when, uh, how long is this going to be accessible for, who has access to it? Like does anybody who didn't get it still have access to the Vecna uh, uh, rules that they released a little while ago? I think that was meant to be fairly limited time. So like it's exciting and it's a cool thank you for being part of D&D Beyond and being on there, but. You know, it, it does come with that instant trepidation of like, so for how long is this mine? Could yeah, and, and the fact this? that you have to sort of claim it, you know, is really mm. tapping into that like loot box mentality of like you have to log You're on so to claim right. it. You can't just get it, you know, like, yeah, you click on you the thing and then you still have to be regularly logging in in order yeah. to access this stuff. You're so right. Yeah, so they're like, get on the website, otherwise you're going to miss out on this thing, you know. Would you, would you ever pay, let's say, $2, five stat blocks, but they're random, like a stat block booster pack. I don't think that I ever would terrible. at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I just, mainly because I have too much content that I haven't read already. <laughs> Why would I pay yeah, for yeah. more? Wait. I don't I even like those, those mystery boxes of minis. I want to know what I'm buying. Same. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I I am the same. That's why, like, very often with monster manuals, I'm very reluctant to sort of, because they're a booster pack of 400 monsters or whatever it happens to be, I like to sort of get a look at at least four or five of them in there to know that, like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get use out of this book before I go in and purchase. Um, But, yeah, I don't don't think these are, are, I assume, because it was the same with Spelljammer. Correct me if any of you know that I'm wrong. These are not... um, like taken from the Dragonlance book. These are in addition to the Dragonlance book, as is the same with uh, the Spelljammer ones, Ooh. I assume. I think that's That true. makes me sad that the Walrus boys aren't going to be in the official book. <laughs> uh, they aren't. They aren't, oh. unfortunately. Shattered. My poor Walrus boys. I mean, that's good and bad. It means that you're getting free content, but also no Walrus boys. Sorry, Dale. You're out. You're out of Dragonlance. <laughs> you were in for such a brief shiny I was moment. In and I'm out. <laughs> all right. That's uh, all that being said. So we've got the Monstrous Compendium, which you can get on DD Beyond if you wish to go grab that. There's new trailer featurette thing for the movie. But let's crack into the big news this week. Speaking of news, uh, we have the one DD uh playtest that they've dropped, the latest Unearthed Arcana. And they don't mess around in terms of the amount of content they drop. I was reading through that article, kind of skimming through it, 
um, and thinking, okay, I'm getting to the end of the cleric. I know there's the cleric in here and I know there's um, the new species uh, kind of re-jiggers in here. Um, so let's, uh, I must be getting towards the end of the document and I was not. It is quite dense. There's quite a lot of changes in here. So I thought we'd break this conversation down so that people can follow it. But Dale, feel free to go wildly uh, in a different direction if you wish to. Uh, I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, is uh, the cleric. Uh, let's start there because I think it's the biggest thing. Uh, Roman in the chat saying that they have opinions on the cleric. would love to hear them. <laughs> so please do chip in. Um, uh, Dale, do you have opinions on the changes that have been made to the cleric? I do. Um, it, you know what it is reminding me of? It's, it, I'm, I'm, being brought back to that moment in time when I was talking about how um, you get introduced to an idea that you'll be, um, you know, th that you'll clash with, that you don't like, and they'll do it early so that you don't hate it as much the next time they introduce <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, because I feel like I I don't mind the cleric. Um, all the things that bug me about this this cleric redesign are the things that have bugged me about every other one D and D playtest thing so far. Um, I still think that not every caster should be a prepared caster. I know the clerics were a pre prepared caster, but I'm just, I'm still on my, I, I'm beating my drum. I think if you're going to change the way that uh, prepared casting works, I think everyone should be a spontaneous caster, but that's just me. Um, I actually, I kind of, I kind of like it. I kind of dig it. Or at the very least, I don't dislike it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I want to interrupt this cleric discussion for a minute. We can get back to it. There's a lot to say about the cleric. I love how this playtest is granular me. enough. They include things like artisan tools. There's been a change to artisan tools. They now cost 15 GP apiece. <laughs> <laughs> That's the change? I love that that was a pressing issue that they were like, we got to fix that in the it's, next. It's like we the gotta... first item. <laughs> I mean, our artisans... <laughs> Uh, are artisan's tools a specific tool type? I thought artisan's tools was what was used to refer to basically all, like, tools. Artisan's tools are a category of tool for which a character can gain tool proficiency. Yes, for a list of different kinds of artisan's tools, see the player's handbook. But ignore the prices there. Those tools now cost 15 GP apiece. They're standardizing the price of all the artisan's tools. I hate it. I hate it. I hate the standardization. That was the one thing I had in my back pocket that I was ready to rage about was the cleric kind of getting a standardized um, leveling with the other classes going in at third level. It's not that I think like, oh, the cleric has to choose their divine order at level one. Like that's not the hill I'm dying on specifically, but the complete standardization from having standardized like class types in the expert, the priest, the warrior, whatever, the, the mage arcanist, whatever it's called, um, standardizing spell lists, standardizing the costs of specific items now. Like everything feels very um, like it's flattening, you know? Uh, yeah. Tell me I more mean, about that. Why do you not like that? Because it feels less, uh, I suppose. It feels like I'm sitting in on a therapy session. Yeah, and, and does it go back to your child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just makes each class feel less unique, you know? I, I wasn't a fan of it as they were coming into um, – uh, uh, Tasha's and Xanathar's either, where it was basically like creating a subclass. I think Xanathar's introduced the the Divine Sorcerer and the Divine Warlock had a different name. But basically these, if you want to play a Warlock, but you want to be a Cleric, this is what you play, which I don't hate inherently because, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of reskinning things or 
finding ways to bend the rules to represent something about a character that that is not typically how that character would be represented. For example, instead of a barbarian going into a blind rage, they go into like combat meditation where they they are supremely calm um, and just move sort of effortlessly, let's say. Um, but it just felt like it was like, well, every class can be used to build any class, if that makes sense. And it just makes every class feel less unique and less um, specialized at what they're meant to specialize in, if that makes sense. Right. I get it's very that. interesting. I'm- People said that about fourth edition classes. Every class is the same now. Everyone has spells. They all, you know, they all hit their different tiers at the same time. And um, I think it's interesting that something as truly minor as this is getting those same hackles up because <laughs> these classes are still very asymmetric. Mm, I mean, here's the thing. I do agree with Ben. I feel like it is feeling like it's flattening uh, a bit. And I, I I, don't know. I can't think of a different word. I aesthetically prefer um, the, the asymmetry of, of the sort of previous 5e designs. But I will say I don't hate everyone getting of, of all the things I don't hate everyone getting their subclass choice at third level specifically because it feels like one of the only times in this one D playtest material that they've actually followed through on this idea of we want to make it easier for people who are new to the game yeah. which I feel like was meant to be a major part of this but for a lot of it they've been making things more complicated um, but making everyone choose their subclass at third level that does feel like that is a step towards that because you do get your sort of um, two training wheel levels and then your real choice, right? Whereas if you were a new player coming to the game for the first time, you basically had to try and avoid playing something like a cleric because Mm -hmm. you would have to make too many choices too soon. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I I certainly agree that if there's too much of it, it will kind of take out some of that uniqueness. But I I still remember the biggest uh, pain points for me as a beginner dungeon master, I'd only played like two or three games when I started being a dungeon master, was those uh, things of like, um, spells in particular, like knowing how spell casting works is just, it's, if you read that paragraph, at least for me about like, you know, the number of spells that you can prepare, it's like my brain just switches off. It's, it makes no sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. and like knowing how thing, things, how much cost, if it's just like a, an easy, like, oh, I want to pick up these tools. Yeah. I don't have to look it up in a book. I know what that is. I mean, I feel like those kinds of things I enjoy, uh, for streamlining the process for new DMs. That's fair. I just, somebody tweeted, um, and I feel like that's becoming my catchphrase. Somebody tweeted, um, uh, but uh, I just don't want to claim other people's thoughts as my original one. But I, 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 I pondered this, which was, you know, in the same breath that um, Jeremy Crawford was talking about simplifying the game. He's also talking about level one feats, you know, having three pages of feats to read through and then choose from and try to choose like, the optimum feat for your character, uh, you know, is kind of pulling back against that in the opposite direction, right? Like, it, 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 it feels like they're they're kind of doing six of one, half dozen of the other in terms of simplifying the game and making it easier for for new people to access. I'm also not a fan of, and again, this, like, this is probably just my personal curmudgeonliness. I've, again, I feel like I'm 60 years old at the moment. It's like, there's one D and um, but the the suggestion of what you should do at the start of every time you get a choice, I understand why that's there to help new players make that choice. I feel like just a pre-gen character sheet can do that same sort of heavy lifting for new players, but it also seems to, I don't know, come with a, an implied, this is the choice you should make. 
I mean, yeah. you could make these other choices as well, but no, like, I, this is the I one you should make. I 100% agree. It really bugs me putting the suggested choice before the yeah. actual text. Like, if, if we're meant to assume customization is, like, the ultimate, like, thing with this, right? Like, you get to choose your own spells, just as an example. Mm. I, I assume that is the baseline. And the idea of giving suggested spells so that newbies don't have to worry about picking something bad. Sure, great. Um, but putting it first drives me up the wall. And I, I don't remember whether they did it in this playtest document, but they definitely did it in the previous one where they said, you gain this spell yes. and this yeah, spell. Yeah, it does say that here. Or you could yeah. choose something else. I hate that. I despise that beyond anything. I know that this is like a, a presentational format that could more than anything change before the final version, but I hate this. Mm. I hate it. I don't like it. And also I will point out that in fourth edition, they do have recommended choices for things like spells and um, frequently they are suboptimal in a way that is really annoying. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it is also a dangerous line to walk. Um, but if they're going to do it, great idea. Put it at the end of the paragraph. Yeah. It's also an interesting, uh, it's interesting you bring up suboptimal, Dale, because it, this is my main problem with it. Generally, I'm okay. I don't I don't mind all of these recommended spells, but the um it it makes wizards look really bad at their own game. Um I, I remember during the the tumult of the edition wars in third and fourth edition, people would often complain about the feat selection for monsters. Because if we remember, those times monsters could gain feats. They gained a lot of feats. And usually it's it's power attack, toughness, these garbage things that inflate a monster's math but don't provide them with any like of the cool bonuses because of course in third edition the optimization edition is full of absolutely busted feats that if you were to customize your own monster would make them two things one really really strong two a nightmare to run and mm -hmm. so this this correct decision the wizards make within the context of their own game which is let's use feats that make this monster straightforward to run and uh, a, a little bit tougher to kill within the math we've established, which is monsters get feats. But they're, they're also stuck at the same time because it makes them look terrible at building uh, optimized monsters. It makes them look like they keep building garbage. Um, and I think that if you, know, if you stick with this, if these spells are not perfectly optimal, it will give whatever they create a reputation for being designed by people who don't know how to play their own game. Right. That might not sure. be true. They might be designing for a different purpose, but it's really bad for an argumentative community like D&D. Yeah. Or, or the opposite thing being that, like, they give really optimal choices. So it's like, why would you choose anything else? Like, this is the right. way you play yeah. a cleric, so to speak. The yeah, only way to not I play a cleric is to, you know, choose weird combo spells. Like, you're making a combo <laughs> deck in magic. That are, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do also want to just say, just for, for the people who are watching, uh, uh, when I say optimal choices, I don't necessarily mean, oh, well, this is how you're going to like maximize your damage output or whatever. I'm talking about optimal in terms of fun, which mm. often does coincide with being effective in combat because yeah. this is largely a combat simulator. Um, so when you, when you get choices that just don't work together or don't work in combat, it often comes across as not fun to play, um, and, which and is, I, I mean, that's not a comment on the specific choices presented here. It's just a comment on the dangers of, um, recommending so hardcore certain choices over others i think i think they their time would be better spent developing a 
algorithm on D&D Beyond that uh, will create characters of any level. Make a, make a middle-of-the-road good character of any level, click a button, go. Now, of course, that maybe gets us into the territory of AI character creation. But uh, let's oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How to not not to give all our time to the cleric because there are other things to talk about. Are we going to give plenty of our time to the cleric though? Um, Just a couple of things that that I've noted and a few people in the chat have mentioned as well. Um, Divine Spark Mm. on your oh, and even like the change. Like all right, let's new heading uh, channel divinity. The changes that are made therein. Divine Spark being a new ability that's given to all clerics. Also, the fact that it's now recharges on a long rest, but you get access to using it as many times as your proficiency bonus, which at this stage I'm assuming is still plus two to begin with, plus three at level five, plus four at some other point. I never play that high. Um, <laughs> how do we feel about the the changes to Channel Divinity? That I really like. Yeah, I like it too. It seems really cool. It's a really solid bit of healing that you have, you know, um, quite limited access to because you'll want to use your channel divinity for other things as well. Um, I think it's just a really solid, exciting boost for the cleric. And I'm I'm always in design looking for those things that I read and I go, that's cool. I want to do that. Um, so I'm kind of hyped about Divine Spark. I do think it's interesting though that um, a lot of the, the cleric stuff we see here seems to be kind of balancing them out so that they can be, um, I mean, in my opinion, more effective um, as fighters, not just healers. And this is sure. sort of one big healing boost for all clerics um, to kind of make up for that. And I think that's interesting given that so much of the bard was written to make the bard into a heal bot. Um, that's just funny to me. <laughs> I don't quite. That there, There's um, a different feel to this design than to what we've seen in the previous playtests, and I'm more excited about this. Sure. I enjoy that um, you sort of, uh, can choose between either dealing damage or healing. I think that's like, I don't know. I always enjoy when you get to, you have to make those choices and you're in the combat and you're like, I don't know, should I heal my friend or should I attack the monster? Like anything How that kind of- How close is the monster to dying? Yeah. <laughs> Would this take them down? Yeah. Yeah, anything that kind of heightens the drama, I'm I'm very much into. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Well, that's what, like, I'm looking at this and it takes a magic action, which I think is interesting because I wonder if I that's- I have a screenshot with that circled in red. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's kind of a way of attaching things like counterspell and um, uh, 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 dispel magic and kind of abilities like or spells at the time uh, like that that are specifically tied to spellcasting uh, and making them more applicable to things that aren't explicitly spells, but they are still magical, such as in, in you the know, player's like handbook. Breath. There's an action called cast a spell. The cast a spell action. The text never calls it a cast a spell action, but sure. that is the action you take when you cast a spell that has a casting time of one action. Um, I imagine they're just going to boil it down to this spell uses a magic action. Sure. And this ability uses a magic action. It's just, you know, it's the action you use when you're doing a magical thing. Which, P.S., I will, I mean, I know that we're going to get more into it later, but I'm just saying we now have um, enough information to know what order we're getting these playtest things in. And they're saving the mages till last (laughs) in terms of the sort of um, the groupings. And I think that that's uh, very interesting just in terms of all these drip feeds we're getting of like, what is ma- what is what is spellcasting going to look like in one D and D? And we're not going to find out until very late in the game. Mm. Um, 
I don't know if I'm a fan of what was it called? Smite Undead, which is mm. the the replacement for Destroy Undead. Destroy Undead to me was just so as a game master, I hated it because it was like, ah, you've got to fight 30 zombies. Here they come. Ca- oh, they're they're all dead. Okay, never mind. To be Next fair, encounter. Though, as a game master, do you ever put 30 zombies in front of a party that doesn't have destroy undead? Uh not not anymore. Uh <laughs> well, no, I do and explicitly because I think it has a really good flight. Like it feels awesome when there are 30 zombies yeah, like bearing down 100%. on the party and they just turn to ash, Absolutely. you know, yeah. like, yeah. like they get Thanos exactly. away. It's the um, best. And they've kind of removed that to make it, I think, more applicable to hurting other types of undead. But a zombie with 22 hit points, I mean, I haven't quite done the maths on it, but I don't think on average you're necessarily going to be smoking 30 zombies at once. It'll just kind of be like you do a bunch of damage to some of them, but they get to make a save, I think, and yeah. well, the saves against uh, turn undead. One of the real bugaboos for designing a mechanically tight game. The is, bugaboos? Uh, bugaboos. <laughs> I, I saw both you and I down our heads at that. <laughs> yeah, bugaboos. To be fair, I think bugaboos. I've heard James say that before. One, one of the great bugbears of designing a mechanically tight game like uh, D&D is that you're constantly trying to balance actions that can be really empirically quantified so your numbers balance out. And stuff that tends to be cool. And uh, one thing that further complicates the issue is that generally only spellcasters get big, splashy, cool stuff. Uh, When you look at a fighter, their big, flashy, cool stuff tends to be you can automatically succeed on a saving throw. Whereas with clerics, it's like, and you instantly smoke all undead under CR one quarter. Um, and the, the thing is, mechanically, they probably, the fighters probably got the more powerful thing going on there. Automatically succeeding on a saving throw, that's pretty dang good. Versus how often are you going to run into a horde of CR one quarter zombies when you're eighth level? Um, but it does create the appearance of a power imbalance because those big spikes of drama are actually what D&D is built upon. That's why the D20 remains here after almost 50 years is because it creates wildly swingy results that create fun, unpredictable drama spikes. Uh, and so generally those big swing, unpredictable drama spikes uh, are suboptimal. Uh, and, you know, you'll never see them on a giant in the playground optimization guide, but they, uh, they unnaturally put a finger on the scale of what classes feel more fun to play. Mm. I also think that um, choice of activation is is a big element in that. Mm. Um, I think so many, I mean, this is not what we're talking about. It'll come up when we get to the Warriors section, but I'm just saying uh, that a lot of the um, martial abilities come down to passive benefits that you don't, you don't get to choose to use this. It just is, um, mm-hmm. which I think uh, makes it feel like you're not doing anything, which I, I you know, even if the clerics destroy all undead under CR one quarter, even if it is less effective, ultimately you are still choosing to do a thing and seeing the impact of that choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think Holy Order is a stupid name for what it is, but I think that the (laughs) idea itself has merit. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I like Holy Orders. Uh, I like the the kind of like specializing. Um, It feels like you're making a choice that is somewhat unique to your character. I, yeah, I, I think it's kind of neat. I think that the subclass should be called Hol- Holy Order. I just don't think, I just, 
I think that that's a phrase that has a meaning and that we're trying to use it to mean something else. And that's what bugs me about it. The actual sound of it is cool, but I, I this isn't, that's just call it like divine calling or something. I don't know. Yeah. I never, I don't think I ever like thought about a domain in terms of like religious like things ever before I started playing D&D. I think, yeah, Holy Order would make a lot of sense. For like the subclass title. Yeah, I actually think it is a much better subclass title than Divine Domain. I guess Divine Domain feels like broader. They even say in this playtest somewhere that like, you know, you may be part of a religious organization or this may be, you know, something that you have taken onto yourself. So it's your own like personal faith or beliefs. Um, so I suppose maybe they don't want to attach the the subclass to like specific divine orders per mm. se, but Often it's kind of like, all right, what god do you worship? That's that's going to tie in in some thematic way to your divine domain. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that was an interesting choice for, for 5e to make. I didn't play a cleric or anything in 4e, so I don't know what the deal is there. But certainly 3.5 or Pathfinder, it was choose a god. These are their domains. You get benefits based on the domains of the god that you chose. So I really liked that 5e went in the direction of just pick the domains. Like, let's cut out the middleman. Sure. What's the thing that you are actually about? What 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 do you are you about healing? Are you about war? You know whatever it is. Um, and I think that that was a, a great move. And now I think that we can call it holy order because I think we get it. <laughs> you know, it's probably just because I'm on a bent at the moment. But I wonder if anybody's ever chosen Kratos as their like uh, divine god um, <laughs> for a war cleric. FYI, no spoilers. I'm still playing. Um, <laughs> speaking of things, as a mythology YouTuber. A lot of people would ask me to make videos about Kratos, like what do the myth of Kratos? And it was so heartbreaking every time to tell them Kratos shows up like literally once. <laughs> does he and actually? He doesn't, he doesn't have any lines. Yeah, he's one of the, he's one of, he and uh, I want to say Discord or Vengeance um, are the ones who drag off Prometheus to get chained up and eaten oh, by the eagle. I didn't but know. He, he was I don't in there think at he all. has any lines. He just shows up and is like, right. I'm well, muscle he you. doesn't talk much in the games either. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's true. He's got one line and it's boy. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> uh, cool. All right. Well, let's have a, a quick chat about speaking of divine beings, uh, the changes that they have made uh, to the races slash now calling them species. Uh, that's a whole discussion that I think maybe we'll have in a second. Um, but may, uh, unless you, and look, I'll let you as a group decide, would you prefer to talk about that first or would you prefer to like break into the changes that have been made to the Dragonborn, the Ardling and the Goliath first? Uh, I only have a few thoughts on that. So I guess that first, I, I think this Ardling is way better. Oh, I agree. Way, way, way the better. The last one was so, con- like, so silly. Like <laughs> you're a, this kind of creature because of this things it does it is not related at all yeah not even it was so confusing i'm so glad you said that because i felt like that as well i was like i know that there must be a connection here but i don't understand what it is and reading the law did not clear it up this is so much better climber flyer racer swimmer big fan big fan of those changes Fair enough. I think it's I, I think it's interesting that the ardling just kind of showed up out of nowhere i my big question about the ardling this is great I love these mechanics is for their first ever introduction to just kind of be in a playtest packet. Mm. Fascinating decision. I mean, was this the same with the, cause my understanding is that what was tiefling 
fourth and Dragonborn fifth or Dragonborn no, fourth no, and no. Teeth, oh, oh, these histories fifth. are very interesting. Ben. Yeah, because um, like, was that the same for them in D and D next? Is it just like here's this? Not at all, because tieflings date back to second edition Planescape, right? Um, uh, where they are kind of celeste, uh, or they're they're a mishmash of all planar outsiders. They're people who have just been riddled with outsider blood. So they have these. They're they're really like patchwork people. Uh, they might have some. Every tiefling is unique. You might have a third eye. You might have a tail. You might have little nub and devil horns. You might have six fingers on each hand. You might, you know, reek of brimstone. Um, but they all have sort of infernal qualities to them. Uh, their current incarnation comes from fourth edition. That's where they gain the sort of red skin, enormous horns, tail. They sort of unified tiefling. They've been retconned into being a society in the forgotten realms at least that long ago made a pact with asmodeus and uh, are suffering from the result of that pact they they broke it and they've been cursed and they've kind of developed their own society from there and that tiefling is the one that survived because it's more brandable i think um dragonborn a lot of people say originated in fourth edition but that's not true they originated in uh races of the dragon a late stage third edition splat book where you were a normal person who made a very expensive egg, crawled into it, and were and prayed to Bahamut to make you into a dragonborn. James already then, swore this episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we're demonetized already. already. Go for it. Because what the f- <laughs> when a when a dragonborn mommy they, and a dragonborn daddy get together and crawl they're, into they're an egg, dragonborn of Bahamut. They, they're distinctly, they worship the platinum dragon Bahamut. They make a giant egg. They crawl in, they do a ritual. They come out with a lot of unique dragon traits. So a lot of these dragonborn traits we're seeing now are actually descended from that third edition dragonborn with wings and yeah, tail sure. stuff and more unique breath weapons because there's a whole extra late third edition players option. Um, and then and the late editions edition, get particularly weird too. Late editions get particularly weird. I, I feel like this playtest exhibits some late fifth edition qualities, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I like. I like weird DD, um, but they're not very uh, accessible to new players. Sure. Um, and again, in fourth edition, uh, they were brought in and kind of streamlined and made a bit more. Um, brandable just like the the tiefling and those incarnations of the dragonborn and the tiefling uh passed on into fifth edition well i just want to say thank goodness that the uh, the dragonborn has dark vision now because that was one of the biggest surprises (laughs) mid playing a game was just like oh yeah you're a dragonborn you got dark vision right so what you see no i don't have dark vision oh you don't see anything uh moving on well um like i said earlier i'm not i'm not a super mechanical player so I don't really know how these things have changed slash stacked up I did try and sort of do some comparison this morning um I like the draconic flight that's fun I mean I love how they're like all dms hate flight so we're gonna give it to them at fifth level because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I like I think flying is awesome and um I like the the goliath being able to like just get real swole uh getting the large form as a bonus <laughs> action just like I'm really I'm getting <laughs> changing the size that's kind of fun yeah it's interesting that they've tied those each to more of the the different types of giants like i know even though they resemble stone giants the most um just going off the artwork 
I had never associated Goliaths in my mind specifically with stone giants, but now that they've changed them to be able to, you know, where is your ancestry from? Uh, uh, you know, are you a fire giant? Are you a cloud giant, etc.? I wonder if we'll get a lot more kind of variance in the artwork and the appearance and the, the kind of theming of Goliaths going forward. Although my one bugbear is that Goliaths, my one boogaboo, if you will, <laughs> is that Goliaths, uh, that are descended from fire giants and frost giants can do more fire and frost damage than a fire or frost giant can. Really? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did a whole video on this recently and they just, like, fire, frost, um, uh, I mean, I guess bludgeoning damage is stone damage, but they have no elemental damage whatsoever. They're just, they're just big bags of hit points. I, I reckon uh, one D&D will alter that. I hope so. I, I have a hunch. Wouldn't it be cool if they just made the fire and frost giants do extra damage? <laughs> they just hurt a lot more. Um, Note to Ben Burns, screw you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'll read when I open that page in the new monster manual. It'll just read, screw Ben Burn if they mm-hmm. don't do fire and frost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say real quickly that this is one of those places as well where it's like, Draconic flight. I I like my dragonborns to not have wings, um, and you know both the Goliath and the the dragonborn have these sort of as you level, you get more stuff for for that species. Um, but I, th- th- it's one of those things where I can recognize that my taste is not the better option. You know what I mean? I think that sure. this is this is definitely better. This is definitely cooler. Uh, you know, I think of my sister playing a dragonborn the first time she was playing D&D and realizing that she didn't have wings and being disappointed about it. You know what I mean? It is definitely a better idea <laughs> for dragonborn to, to get some limited access to wings. That sounds cool. And having these, you know, cool added things that you can do at fifth level is it's fun, and uh, you know, I'm I can punish my players at my own table for it. I, I think that it's. Um, I like it, and I don't think it goes far enough. I think the idea of magically producing spectral wings yeah. is a thematic mismatch. You should just have. You should wings. just have you wings. You know wings. what? You're right. Maybe it's a feat. Your wings are permanent. I mean, do they go away? Is that the? I haven't read yeah. it in detail. I'm kind yeah, of any like time of ten minutes. Right? They're like ghostly. You you yeah. manifest ghostly wings. And I'm like, what? My now my that you brought this up, actually, any time that that five e or one d d has used the spectral such and such, I don't think I've liked it. I think I've usually been like, just give them the thing. Yeah, it's a total um, cop out. <laughs> yeah, I I think that you are right. Yeah, take it even further. Go hard because these are the points where it feels like they're actually getting excited by the fantasy of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of what we've seen so far has felt like. And we need to make sure that everyone gets feats at the same level every time so that you're not, you know, getting mismatches in power level and all that stuff. That's been boring. This stuff, even if I disagree with it, is exciting and fun. I like the idea of making it like, you know, instead of it being spectral, like you have the wings all the time. They just cost a lot of like energy to use so you like are tired <laughs> yeah. after you use them you can't Getting use them until you have a you know like it's- exactly like you need to work on this game they've revamped exhaustion every time you use your wings every time you fly for a minute boom point of exhaustion don't oh, use them oh that's much. great that's love good. that yeah i like that that's good yeah what's he on the phone i have to admit like i'm gonna i think ultimately agree with you dale but i i am a little um nascent about the fact that all the classes all the player classes are getting 
far more inherently magical, you know, with the Goliath's yes. ability to to grow. I think I can't remember quite what the ability was, but like dwarves in the last uh, playtest packet were like made of stone or something, or could like whisper to stone or animate stone or something like that. And I remember Jeremy Crawford saying at the time, we really want to push the the now species, previously races, to be the dwarfiest dwarf that ever dwarfed. And now the dragonborn is the drag draconicest dragon that's ever dragoned and the the goliath is the giantiest giant goliath that's ever blah 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 blah. but it does make it harder to capture like i when i play DD, i do limit a lot of uh um uh player race choices in terms of like you know anthropomorphic races or uh dragons and we've talked about this on the podcast before but it's basically because it's much harder to create a mystical fantastical feeling world where the players are discovering like these really strange otherworldly events if you're meeting the cat people of the deep jungle and it's like oh they're so strange and and um uh you know uh, well actually bob we've got bob in the party bob bob's bob's a cat person so we we'll you know this is this is completely normal to us you know does that make sense i love the magical very magical races they're so fairy tale right uh, dwarves being short, angry humans who have some kind of affinity for mining is the most boring dwarf I can conceptualize. It's <laughs> like detolkenizing these species, I think, is the best thing D&D could do. Sure. I guess it Boom, just makes conflict. It makes D&D <laughs> fight, fight, it makes fight, D&D fight. more specific, right? Like the fantasy becomes more specific yeah. then it becomes more specifically high fantasy. Mm hmm. I yeah. kind of like that, though, because I feel like D&D has always, at least, I don't know, it's always had this thing of, like, you can make D&D do anything when it's like, well, actually, there are probably other systems that could do the thing you're trying to do. Where, mm-hmm. And if they're leaning into this theme, I think maybe that mindset might become a little bit more apparent of, like, I want to run a low magic, gritty campaign. D&D is too fantastical. What else is out there that I might try? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. I, I sit in a weird place because I kind of agree with Ben, but... For me, the part that bugs me is when you just get these these elements of the racial sort of features where it just says, and now you can cast this spell, but it's kind of just inherent to you. I, I dislike that. I think when it's constructed like, like the way that they've presented these sort of magical elements of the Goliath, for example, that feels cool to me. That feels like, oh, this is a fun thing that only my... I, I, I can do because I'm a Goliath and the people mm-hmm. who aren't Goliaths can't do this, right? Whereas when they're just like, oh, you're a fire genasi, so here, have a bunch of fire spells just attached to your race, that mm-hmm. really bugs me. That's that's when it feels too magical for me. Agree. Yeah. Just like in a monster stat block, don't make me go hunting for a spell in the back of the book. Yes. Show me the cool thing I can do. Make it feel special. Fair. Um... Uh, do we have, uh, I, I know that we do because I've, I follow you all on Twitter, uh, but, uh, <laughs> the, the change from, uh, races to species, um, the elephant uh, in the room, it is a bit of an elephant in the room. Uh, how do we feel about this, this change specifically to species, you know, I, I am down with changing from race. I don't understand this aversion to ancestry or, um, you know, lineage. Lineage that, is right there big, already in Tasha's. It's, like, I don't understand. It's right there. I don't understand why you would suddenly be like, you know what? Let's go all Latin. Let's put all our eggs in this taxonomical basket. Um, it's 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 a weird choice to me because I feel like it, um, it 
means that maybe they were listening to the wrong people when when the conversations around this were happening. Um, they hired a consultant, apparently several. I just I don't like it. I don't like it because because for me it um it ignores what the problem is, right? The problem is that you've got people that's what the characters are. They are all people who we keep applying these sort of um essentialist bi- biological concepts to, but but not having them actually be biological, right? So so something like having wings, sure, that is a biological element of your your character's race, species, ancestry, lineage, whichever word you choose to use, versus having an an intelligence bump. That is where the problem lies. Having having things that should not be biologically determined grouped in here. And changing the name to species, I think just misses the point. I think um, that it buys into one of the arguments that I've seen crop up a lot, which is, oh, it's because we're using race, which in the real world means something different to in D&D. In a fantasy world, what they're really talking about is different species. I've seen that argument a bunch of times. I understand what those people are saying, but I feel like changing the name to species misses the point in a way that is really grating to me. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, they are they are trying to do both in terms of like now ability score improvements are sort of free floating and you get to attribute those yourself. So they're no longer tied to the the species traits. Other than that, I, I agree with what you said. I don't know. I, I I feel like this this topic is is one that I I just should listen on because it's 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 not my skin in the game here. Uh, I, you know, outside of, outside of arguments I've heard against it, I, I rather like the term species because they've moved away from cultural traits in this character option, which was previously called races because they, they're taking out things like elven weapon training and things like stone cunning. A dwarf stone cunning is no longer a sort of dwarven cultural trait. It's now an innate biological one. And by, and by that token, I think species makes a lot of sense. Um, people that are all infused with the same sort of magic or the same sort of physiology, those are the traits that you're giving them. Um, I don't like species because the real world connotations of that word animalizes these characters. uh, And I think that that is a dangerous line to walk. And I think at best, species does nothing to change any of the problems. At best, it is a neutral change. At worst, I think it could damage things. Interesting. Do you think that... uh, Species carries a connotation in a sci-fi setting. Yeah, I think that 100%. Yes. Yeah. You think I, so? I always think and of Vulcans sci-fi are different aliens. species from humans. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> oh, I mean, look, things getting real on the law. This conversation is just to listen, no, man. I, I mean, I I agree. I agree, but that know. that is where I feel about it. Um yeah, I, I think yeah. to just quickly, you know, uh, if it's another elephant in the room, acknowledge our privilege here being a panel of a predominantly of white, white people, people yeah. kind <laughs> of commenting on this. So, I, I, you know, if there's a silence <laughs> of, of uh, reluctance to sort of speak, I think it's because, uh, you know, agreeing with James, we're not the right people to comment on uh, specifically why there are problems with uh, and why there needed to be a change in the first place. Okay, um, for for people who like ancestry as a term, can I ask why you think ancestry is a is a better term than race? I actually prefer race, um, but if it is a term that people have problems with, I I ancestry is like sure, okay, this just says where you come from. Um, but for me, I I 
don't have a personal problem with the term race. Yeah. Um, there just aren't a lot of good words for what D&D is trying to get at here. There are. Uh, probably because what what we're trying to apply to the conversation is something that that differs from what a lot of the the classic fantasy foundations have established. Tolkien uses the race of men and elves and dwarves to mean basically exactly what D&D is trying to say. Um, And if we want to keep what Tolkien called races without calling them races, then what are we going to call them? Because we're not really changing the concept here. We're just kind of renaming it. I mean, ideally, I think that we are changing what the concept is, right? We're, we're changing these elements that say, oh, if you are a gnome, you are more intelligent. If you, know, if you are an orc, then you are stronger. Um, I think that ideally we are changing those elements and possibly the name change just goes along with that to signify that it's different to what it used to be um, more than anything else. But yeah, There's it's all just chat saying, it's mm. very messy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there are people in chat saying that kindred, kind, and kin are the best words to use for this, and I, I just do not agree with with that statement. It 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 feels it feels overly poetical for what we're trying to describe here. I I can't imagine myself saying, okay, what what kind did you choose to play? What what kindred did you choose to play? What kin did you choose to play? Uh, with the obvious proviso that kin invokes some interesting online discourse that I would not. Uh, like to bring up my D and D table, uh, but I kindred. What is your kindred? A lot of this is I just don't know how much of this aversion to certain terms is based on them being unfamiliar, uh, because race has been in the lexicon for so long mm. uh, that everything else is going to sound new and a little bit clumsy. Yeah, because it's it's not not what we're used to. Mm. I think a big, uh, just a, I mean, the biggest problem with it is that we're trying to uh, give mechanical aspects to a very nuanced uh, concept, you know, which, yeah, it's just, yes. I think it's, it, it, it's impossible, it's impossible really to come up with a term that's going to be perfect and encompassing in the way we want it to be. I don't know. That's a really good and important thing to bring up is that, is that we're, we're treading into a zone where we're no longer just going, hmm, how many dice can we do damage with if we're breathing fire? It's, it's a very different thing. And it's something that possibly we never should have meddled with in the first place. Well, well, it, I mean, it's, but when you say that it's something we never should have meddled with in the first place, I mean, the whole, the, the concept really comes out of like our mythology, right? Like, like having peoples that are, um, you know, fantastical in their nature, such as, you know, elves and orcs and Aarakocra, you know, these are creatures that don't literally exist in the real world, but they have come into the storytelling of our fantasy role-playing games because they have existed within our mythology and play a role within those stories. Um, but as we continue to tell those stories and modernise those stories, um, we run into the problem because the conversation needs to become more nuanced because the analogies and the way that we relate to those stories and what differentiates an orc from an elf has become a lot more um, problematic in modern in the modern understanding of those differentiations than in the ancient times when those stories, largely European, but obviously not entirely, in, as represented in D&D, largely European, 
um, you know, they didn't think about it. They were just like, yeah, it's an orc. Cool. It's, of course it's completely different, you know. Like- right, and I think that that gets to part of where this this problem begins, right, is that I don't think that anyone is sitting down to design the mechanics for an orc and going, how can I make this a racist stereotype? You know what I mean? Cool. No one, I think, I think that yeah. this is where a lot of the, um, the incidental systemic issues <laughs> come into play because there are things like, I remember the first time, it was one of the earliest RPGs I was playing in and uh, it was the um, Iron Kingdoms RPG where there are certain limitations where it says, oh, if you're playing an Ogren, then you cannot be a magic user because they are not intelligent enough to cast magic. And I was so deeply offended by that concept, even though it is it is obviously not a deliberate attempt at any kind of real world thing. They're, they're just making a cool fantasy world, right? And this is this is part of their world building. But I'm sitting here coming from a background where I guess I had just recently learned about, in history about you know, women not being allowed into university because the the argument was, oh, well, they're, they're not intelligent enough to get into university anyway. So sure. why let them take the test? And and so it, it cut really deep then. And I think that it cuts really deep now, even when it's not not even about me anymore. It's it's this thing where you can unintentionally reflect um, these these long held cultural associations and, and ideas that it's taken a lot of work to push back against. And if, if you're not careful, they just kind of crop up because you leave them unchecked. Um, it's, I don't think anyone is deliberately setting out to, to be racist. Um, I just think that it's, it's something you got to kind of watch out for. And I but think again, we're all white people. <laughs> races like dragonborn and uh, ardlings and tieflings are a little bit easier to handle in this regard because they present significant physiological differences. Yes, from it's human so beings. it's so different to be like, oh, well, they're bird people, so they have wings, right? That is such mm-hmm. a different issue compared to, I, I don't know. But but I think the they're, line they're, they're muscly the green humans. Yeah, with yeah. tusks. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. The line here is very blurred and, like you said, Dale, unintentional because I think the tiefling has, in particular, has evolved from. Um, and, and James, you're obviously way more, uh, down in the history, like the publication history of this than I am. So correct me if I get any, any of this wrong, but as presented, I suppose, in the fifth edition players handbook and at the start of fifth edition, it was like, these individuals are only spoken about in whispers because people assume that they are evil because of their infernal legacy, you know, and that is passed to them in some capacity and, um, you know, uh, 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 I think the the player's handbook even says tieflings tend towards evil alignments, um, which, yeah, they they they've got big horns and and they they look fantastical and they've got tails with um, you know spikes on the end of them or whatever it happens to be. But um, tieflings have almost kind of evolved over fifth edition to become like. No, they're 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 almost like a persecuted people, right? Because they're and then we start to get into those awkward, uncomfortable analogies again. Because no intelligent species, individual person should be thought of as inherently evil as a as a sect of people, right? And so again, like as fantastical as you want to make them, as soon as you bring them into the realm of being an intelligent people, um, those 
uh, analogies are going to start to crop up and exist. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's part of what makes these human-like, human-adjacent humanoids, even elves and dwarves, uh, such a challenge to work with. If you if you want to feel very uncomfortable about orcs for a few moments, I urge you to Google "Drums on Fire Mountain," a D and D adventure published by TSR uh, in the eighties or nineties, and uh, look at the sort of African tribesmen that these orcs are cast as on that cover. It's it, it's deeply unsettling, um, and. <sighs> It's it's so easy, I think, to talk about what is wrong with the concept of race in D and D. We all know the problems, I think. Uh, but to actually pose a solution, I, I don't know to, if I'm the right from, person to do that. It's from, it's it's why it's why I I am interested to hear that it's Wizards's cultural consultants who gave them the name species. Who or and and that's a very black box situation. I don't know how well wizards listen to those consultants. They they don't have to. They're not obligated to. Um, I don't know who those consultants were, what background they're from, how many of them there are. Phoenix Iwaki rating. Yeah. Well, yeah. welcome yes. to this, this is very, very fun topic. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just. We're all so like, deep in the weeds, and then James is like, Woo! <laughs> "Yay!" Also, <laughs> uh, ultimately, um, it, it will be the community that that decides whether or not this works and whether or not it's effective. It, it seems like a decision that uh, needs to be made with a lot broader feedback. And who knows? Maybe maybe Wizards is actually listening to this conversation. I think they'd be fools not to. Mm. Not this conversation in particular, but the broader. <laughs> the broader, oh, I didn't the know broader, what you meant for a second there. Fools not to listen to the Eldritch Lord <laughs> Come on, what do you get it together? We're the number one D&D podcast. Um, oh yeah, and I think ultimately, ultimately, James is right. I feel like, um, yeah. you know, I had an opinion and I'm on a podcast where I was asked my opinion, so I gave it, but... I think I think James is right that from here on it's time to stand back and let other people who have more skin in the game talk it out. Um, uh, Orable Cabbage is it possible to have a workable system that doesn't have any concept of race, species, etc.? As a newer person, does your type of person have wings? He yes. Read Aurora: Age of Desolation, published <laughs> by Ghostfire Gaming. Um, that is Sean Merwin's brilliant take on a non-racialized fantasy world where traits dictate the type of creature that you play as i really recommend you look at aurora if that's the sort of thing you're wondering about uh well speaking of things that we can opine on more broadly on the rules changes that were included in the unearthed arcana um uh, they they've re-included exhaustion i i missed if this was in the last one but i noted this time it now affects spell save dcs so your spell save dc is lowered by the number of points of exhaustion you have which i thought was uh, really fascinating and an elegant way to to cause exhaustion to affect spellcasters. Um, uh-huh. The hit, hit being hidden is now a condition, uh, so it can be removed with uh, lesser restoration. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but it is now a condition that has like specific uh, prerequisites to it and pre- specific ways of getting cancelled. Um, uh, and I also uh, I saw dazed as a new condition, which I liked but he's going to get confusing for Grim Hollow players because there's already a dazed uh, uh, condition in Grim Hollow which uh, disallows spellcasters from concentrating on spells whilst they are dazed. 
Uh, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come up with some differentiation for that in uh, in in uh, <laughs> short term. I love dazed. Dazed is great. I thought it was it's interesting that they condition. they made dazed be the condition for the turn undead for clerics rather than the the creatures moving away from oh, the cleric. Oh, I didn't even they're spot now that. Dazed. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because turn undead for at least it's always like what I've seen is like, oh, I don't know if I want to use it because then they all run away and like then they're just going to come back again. I wonder yeah. if that's a, a way to negate that, that they just stay still and then you can still attack them. I don't know. Well, they could still mm. attack you in theory, right? Like if you get surrounded because they can still take an action on their turn and what's a zombie going to do? They're going to attack. So you almost want to time your turn undead really specifically so that they're not already within melee range of you because otherwise mm. they... Does dazed disallow uh, reactions? Can you react while you are dazed? Um. Um, you also can't take bonus actions or reactions. Okay. So you could just, I suppose you, you cast it or you run away. invoke no and then run away. Attacks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is interesting. I didn't spot that. Mm. I don't um, know if I have an opinion I, on I that. I just thought this, it was interesting. <laughs> this is a very interesting little change to uh, flying. You no longer fall if you uh, are prone while flying. You can no longer trip a dragon out of the air. <laughs> uh, That's a shame. Ma- I know. Battlemaster fighters can no longer just go boink and the dragon plummets 500 feet and is smashed upon the pavement. Yeah, there was a Monster Hunter trait that I wrote based on that as well, where the idea was you shoot like a like a a um like bolus. a net basically or a bolus. Ooh. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for from a crossbow. And the idea is you can just catch a, a griffin or something out of the sky and cause it to to crash to the ground. So um, now you'll have to actually specifically write that in. <laughs> oh man, I spent so long on that as well, where I was because it was based on the Horizon Zero Dawn like anchor thing that you use. And I was like, all right, so if you hit them, then they could still kind of move away, but they can't go further than this, but they could come closer to you because they're anchored to the ground. So the way that this is too complicated, it grapples them. They go prone. Like <laughs> that's what it does. Um, speaking of conditions, um, boy, does my heart sing for the hidden condition. Mm. No, stealth debates were the bane of being online in early 5e. And since we've kind of agreed to stop caring about them uh, just as a culture, the hidden condition now provides some concrete uh, effects for uh, being stealthy. And most importantly, it provides some concrete ways to lose your stealth as well, such as making a sound louder than a whisper, an enemy Mm. finding you whatever that means uh you making an attack roll you cast a spell with a verbal component specifically or you are no longer heavily obscured or behind cover and it all makes sense more than that these are all things that were just straight up in 5e this is something that doesn't need a 1 D overall you can take this hidden condition straight into 5e right now same with dazed mm. and it will make your 5e game uh, better. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the way that it, this changes the invisibility spell, which we have not seen yet. Oh, no, wait. Here it is. Or we have the invisible condition. Never mind. Uh, uh, whenever we see what the new invisibility spell works like, how it affects with hidden or invisible or things like that, I, I think this condition has potential to affect the game in really good ways. Um, the only thing I don't like about it is that it uh, if you cast a spell with verbal components, I understand why they might have done that. Uh, but it makes like I always impress upon my spellcasters. Casting a spell is not subtle unless you have subtle spell. It is like a 
big effect that you create. So having it put into the rules that it has to be verbal, um, I don't know. I suppose it doesn't bother oh, me you that much. To be I'm just complaining spells. to complain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Oh, right, right, right. So they're doing like bending maneuvers in order to do somatic components. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, my subject change was just going to be because I know that we're running out of time. I don't want to like get super deep into it, but I do want to point out um, the the video talking about the survey feedback. Um, long video gets in deep on what they're looking for in survey feedback, um, how they're interpreting that feedback, the changes that they've made as a result of the early surveys. And I think that that's uh, just a really great thing to do to keep us in the loop of, of how that stuff is being used. I think that that's um, really worthwhile. And I found it very interesting. Absolutely. Speaking of interesting things, my dog has, I don't know if you can hear that, but she has decided that there's something interesting, so I should go check on it. So we're going to bring this podcast to a close. She wants to um, be part of the podcast, yeah, Ben. I'll bring her in one day. My my idea for when we were doing the Halloween episode super quickly was to start with just her paws up and her on camera, and then I would be like, I'm a werewolf, and that's my Halloween costume. Anyway. <laughs> That being said, uh, this is the end of the show. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, thank you for everybody for joining us in the Twitch chat. Thank you uh, for the two raids that we got. That was really awesome. I uh, hope uh, anybody who stuck around has enjoyed their time here. Um, uh, uh, and uh, please, someone who knows Twitch well, tell me what is happening in our chat right now because I don't want to get it wrong. I believe- Warhouse uh, Spud has gifted a sub. You so. are incredible because we just got affiliated, I think, yesterday, literally. So thank okay. you, everybody who's been supporting us on Twitch as well. It's been really fantastic having that extra element to the show over the last six months. Um, thank you, Luna, for joining us. If folks want to uh, find you elsewhere, you have a YouTube channel. Where can people find you? You can find me at Luboffin, L-U-B-O-F-F-I-N, everywhere pretty much on the internet. I'm on Twitch a few times a week streaming. I'm on YouTube doing Critical Role videos uh yeah and i'm on twitter sometimes giving opinions i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um if twitter, you, home of opinions yeah <laughs> if you uh missed the first half of this episode as well if you came in halfway through with a raid there will be the fully edited version on the Ghostfire podcast youtube channel where you can find us find us subscribe to that channel and of course if you want to ask the panel a question we didn't get around to them this week because there was a deluge of news uh, but you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com uh, and I bank those emails to bring to the panel each week or most weeks. Um, so uh, do that. All right. My name's been Ben Byrne. I've been here as always with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, and joined this week by Luna. Go find her channels at Luboffin all over the shop and we will see you next week. Yeah, there's Dante coming in with I the, was uh... muted. <laughs> <laughs> I was no. doing the music. <laughs>